This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. And welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden. I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen. And this is our all Milwaukee Bucks championship episode of the Door <laughs> County Pulse. Miles, how stoked are you that the Bucks won the championship? I'm pretty, pretty excited. I'm still uh, a little bit in disbelief that the city of Milwaukee has an NBA championship. It's pretty mind blowing to me. Is this the first time Milwaukee's ever won? It's not the first, but it's the first time in 50 years. And May as well be the first because it's the first time in really this modern era of the NBA. You know, a, a league that is pretty much dominated by a few teams, a few markets, and kind of this super team collective. And now Milwaukee has it, and they have one with Giannis, the guy who stayed. I think like it generally, you think, well, it doesn't work this way anymore. And it did for Milwaukee, which is amazing. I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast before, but every single Milwaukee Bucks game I have ever watched, they have lost. And so I did not watch them at all this year. And you're welcome. Yeah. Thanks for doing your part. I try. I try very hard. We won't be talking about the Milwaukee Bucks for the whole episode. Uh, <laughs> as much as I know that you probably could talk about them. For the I whole certainly episode. could. Yes. Uh, we have a lot of stuff to talk about, though. We've got some news. We have uh, some other stories that I want to get into. But why don't we segue and just stay in the sports realm for a little bit here. Speaking of big games on Washington Island, the County League Baseball uh, had its kind of big, fun match of the year, right? Well, for me, it's the fun match of the year. Yeah, the Sister Bay Bays are in first place, and they traveled to the island on Sunday to take on the second-place Washington Island Islanders. And uh, so, one, it's a matchup of two of the top teams in the league. If you've never been to a County League baseball game, you should go. It's just like this little slice of Americana where people still come out and support their local county team, you know? And so a few hundred people go, cheap brats. It's like four bucks to get in. It's fun. Kids chasing foul balls and collecting quarters for turning in the foul balls. So it's just this kind of a throwback atmosphere. It's like a little league for adults. And do the Islanders get really excited about it too? Is that part of the atmosphere? Yeah, I mean, so it's cool anywhere in the county league. There's eight teams, but the island is a particularly special atmosphere because, you know, there's only so many things to do on Washington Island. So... The locals come out in droves. So you'll see, it's pretty common to see a crowd of 300 people at a Washington Island baseball game. You might see a couple hundred more than that. When the Sister Bay Bays go, because the Bays have a lot of fans, obviously Sister Bay is the closest of the other teams to the island, and people just have fun going over on the ferry and spending a day up there. So at the game the other day, I mean, it was minimum 500, maybe 800 people there watching this baseball game between these top two teams. And it's just a lot of fun. The Islanders, their fans heckle with the best of them. So you get a little tension going on here and there. The Bays have some fans who are known to heckle pretty well. Yeah, you know, they all give each other a lot of crap throughout the game and then hang out at the Bitters Pub afterward. And it's just a really cool atmosphere. I've heard that the Washington Islanders are one of the best teams in the league. And I wonder if part of that is the rumor that I've heard that for home games, they bring the visiting team up the night before and really party them up so that the game the next day, they're <laughs> exhausted and maybe hungover. Can you lend credence to that rumor? You know, if I were the island, that would definitely be my strategy. I don't even know that they have to like make people come up. When I played one terrible year in the county league, we all went and camped up there and partied the night before the game. 
Our team was bad enough that I don't think the partying made a big difference, but it has been known there's like an island flu that you might get if you go over there the night before. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, that sounds fun. I know that there's a couple more games still coming up for the County League. So like you said, if you have not seen a County League baseball game yet, you owe it to yourself to go check it out. It is a fun atmosphere for sure. Yeah, and this week uh, the Bays won 3 to nothing on the strength of three solo home runs. And there was a, a few games, a few weeks left in the County League season before they get into the playoffs. So I think now the Islanders drop to third place. I think Kohlberg is in second place right now. I think they are 10-2. and two. The Bays are 11-1. and one. Um, so it's going to gonna be a fun playoff matchup, and the Islanders might end up playing the Bays again. Right. We have a couple of bigger stories that I want to get into, but before we touch on those, I just wanted to also mention that the Women's Fun Luncheon is coming up on August 4th. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I got a chance to talk to Hillary Pennington, who is going to be the keynote speaker for this year's Women's Fun Luncheon. They've been doing it. I think this is year number 12. It's a major fundraiser for the Women's Fund. But it's also just a really cool event because they bring in great speakers. You know, it's really interesting perspectives, obviously, from a woman's point of view. But I've really enjoyed it. I mean, these are some great messages, great lessons for anybody. So it's not like, oh, you have to be a woman to go to this, right? I think maybe a lot more men should go to something like this. I've been to these in the past, and it's just, you know, 10, 12 years ago when there weren't that many women serving on local boards and in local government. It was really cool to go to the the luncheon and just see... 300 local women together, like viewing themselves as leaders and starting to imagine themselves in these leadership positions. And, you know, I think things like the Women's Fund, not just the luncheon, but some of the programs they support, I think that is part of why we now have a county board that is almost half female and why more women have run for office on local boards and things, because it took kind of changing the mindset of people like, hey, I belong there. And now I have to go and take this. And I got to run for office and I've got to do these things. And I, I think we're reaping the rewards of that throughout the county. Right. For those who don't know, can you just briefly tell me what the Women's Fund does? Uh, they award a lot of grants to different organizations who create programs to support women in the community. So, you know, like the NWTC has some programs that help older women return to the workforce and return to college and get advanced training or get finally get their degree, things like that. All kinds of different things. If you remember the the Story Slam is another women's fund event where they bring a bunch of women and men together to tell their stories. It'd be nerve-wracking if it were me to stand up in a crowd and tell a very personal story. But it's one of the cooler events I've been to up here as well. And tickets are on sale for that through the 28th of the month, correct? Yeah, those are available at the Women's Fund website through next Wednesday. Uh, I think they're $75 a piece. It's at Stone Harbor Resort. August 4th, it's a, well, Hillary Pennington, I should say, she is the vice president of the Ford Foundation. So that's an international nonprofit supporting a lot of social justice initiatives, but also educational initiatives, a lot of things around the country. Got a chance to talk to her yesterday. And one of the things she's going to be talking about is obviously some of the major topics in philanthropy of the day, but also, you know, just the importance of these women's organizations that are really somewhat new in the philanthropic world and how they are changing the game and how they are putting different people in leadership positions and changing the way we approach some of our problems. And she also, Hillary Pennington has a home in Door County and spends a chunk of the year every year at summers here. So she's also going to be talking a little bit about like, you know, from a kind of an outsider's perspective, you know, just even though she's owned a home here, you know, she's not a year round resident, but like that perspective of what makes Door County unique to her and what makes it special from somebody's perspective who works with organizations 
all around the world and why why the preservation and the philanthropic world in Door County is, is so important to this community. So it should be a pretty fascinating. She's a really interesting person to talk to. I'm looking forward to seeing her speak on August 4th. Yeah, that sounds like it's going to be a great event. So last week in The Pulse, we featured a story from Jessica Getzo. She's our mm-hmm. arts and outdoor intern. And she wrote on Cave Point and exploring it safely. And this article was... Really interesting when we first kind of looked at what she brought back from her, you know, digging into it, because we, of course, knew that people get rescued out of Cape Point all the time. But we, di- we didn't necessarily know just how many calls Dark County Emergency Services get about it each year. And part of that is exacerbated by when you think of Cave Point, a lot of people think of it in the height of the summer when people are jumping off the rocks and swimming. And that has become kind of the iconic image of Cave Point in the Mm -hmm. summer. And yet it is not something that anybody promotes, right? Because there are inherent dangers involved in it. And the dangers are, I think, bigger than a lot of people realize. So walk me through some of your takeaways in reading this, and then we'll get into kind of just the timeliness of it and how that all shaped out with some water rescues and some deaths that actually occurred in Cave Point this year as well. Well, first of all, this it was spurred by, we got a, an email from a reader who said that they had heard, I think it was a niece of theirs that had been involved in a water rescue at Cave Point just a few weeks ago um, by someone, I believe it was a kayaker, uh, might've just been a swimmer. So we checked into that and we also... Followed up and trying to give, you know, when we do stories of the pulse, we, we generally try not to just do, here's this thing that happened. And we certainly try never to sensationalize bad news, so to speak. So, you know, if we're reporting on something that's on fire, we're trying to give obviously that news that's out there, but also like, all right, why did it happen? How do you prevent it moving forward? What does it mean to the community? In the same case, in, in the case of uh, a drowning or something like that, we don't, we don't like to see our jobs as just putting somebody's name in the paper and making things more difficult than they need to be for a family who's going through trauma, right? So when we looked at the, the Cave Point thing, we're like, okay, well, how, do we, how do we give people something they can use? How do we tell them how to go to Cave Point, what the rules are, what the unwritten rules are, and how to be safe when trying to do these things that we all want to do? You know, I have nieces and nephews who love to jump off the rocks at Cave Point. Technically, you're not supposed to do that, but we all know that people are going to do it. So it's like, how do you do it safely? And here's the things you need to know, because we do have people who have been hurt. We have rescues, rescues that, you know, it's worth it to save a life, but also they do cost money too. You know, and when you, when you have a water rescue, it takes a lot of resources from emergency services, the Coast Guard, police, fire department. So if you're doing that, like we want to rescue anybody, but especially if you're just doing it by being careless, you're taking a lot of people's time away that might be put to somebody else's rescue. So in any case, this weekend, we had two tragedies. We had somebody who died while swimming at Cave Point, somebody who was swimming in the water, got out of the water and collapsed and fell back in and drowned. It's unclear whether or not that person had some sort of medical condition or if it was related to the swimming or if they overexerted or if they had taken on water while swimming. So I don't want to say that it was a pure drowning at Cave Point. Same thing, there was a drowning at Schoolhouse Beach, another of the iconic places in Door County. Don't know the details behind that as well, but that person was pulled from the water and later died at the hospital. Don't know if a medical emergency, but they're saying that it's likely an accidental drowning. Both really tragic, both really sad young men, 135, 126. So what Jessica had written about before those two incidents 
was just how to explore safely and what the rules are at Cave Point, which is technically you're not supposed to jump in. Yeah, well, and going back to what you said about the the water rescues, Jessica reported that Aaron LeClaire said that his department gets 15 calls a year for kayak rescues. (laughs) That's uh, Door County Emergency Services. And then beyond that, too, they're getting six to eight calls a year just from people, you know, needing water rescues at Cave Point for jumping or swimming. Yeah. So... That's, you know, upwards of almost 20 calls a year. Yep. And most of them are happening during the summer, too. So it's a really condensed point. Yeah. I mean, just in the last few years, you had the person who died just recently. You had two kayakers who died offshore at, at Cave Point because a lot of people underestimate. They're like, oh, it's pretty. Everyone does it. And you see the pictures. And, you know, a good kayak guide is only going to take you out there when it's safe, when the conditions are right, when the wind's not blowing at the wrong place. Someone who's going swimming in there smartly is only going to go in there when it's safe. But a lot of people do it on their own. They just don't understand the power of Lake Michigan, I guess is the way to put it. And then I think it was two winters ago, somebody in the winter, Cave Point is a really popular place for people to go take photographs. The ice that forms on it, it it makes for these beautiful images. And many of which we have used to market Door County and Destination Door County and and other organizations. And rightfully so. It's beautiful. It's It's a cool experience. But a photographer just out there trying to get some photos of that winter experience slipped and fell and drowned in the winter time a couple of years ago. So it's, you can't underestimate what could happen there just by a moment of carelessness. Right. Well, and there's several contributing factors to why cave point can be dangerous, right? The topography is mm-hmm. not only incredibly challenging, it's not a, just a smooth platform for you to walk out on. It's all rock and root and mm-hmm. holes in the rock where you can see clear through to the bottom of the water. So not only do you have challenging terrain, but you have terrain that's ever evolving. Cave Point's probably one of the most visited natural areas in Door County, just mm-hmm. in terms of foot traffic. And that has an effect on everything, right? Mm-hmm. It starts to smooth those rocks out. It starts to, you know, create a different geographical area than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And rocks fall into the water all the time. So the amount of room that you have up there is decreasing every year and becoming more treacherous. And now I don't know that we have, you know, any info on people who have fallen into the water because Cave Point has fallen into the water. (laughs) But when that happens, it changes, right? So you might be like, oh, I come up here every year. I kind of know how it feels. It's going to be different the next year. There was a big outcropping that that fell into the lake just uh, last year, actually. So like that's very different. And then the other thing, too, in terms of like the jumping in, the swimming can be dangerous on its own. But jumping in, you're jumping into, I don't know, maybe eight feet of water right now Mm -hmm. in that zone, which is not a lot to jump into, especially Mm -hmm. if you're a six foot tall person. But beyond that, that's because of fluctuating water levels. Right. If you were jumping in last year probably was a little bit safer than it is this year. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because as the water levels go back down, you have less and less room. So you might come up and be like, man, I love jumping in cave point. I used to do it all the time, except now the the water levels down a foot and you break your leg. (laughs) You know, it wouldn't be like, I don't feel like these things should be off limits to people. I'm not one that says like, oh, nobody should ever jump in, you know, because nobody wants to see railings on cave point. Right. right? Yeah. And it's people are attracted to it for a good reason. It's a beautiful place. Like, and we should go check those places out. People should fall in love with the outdoors and experience them. And for some people experiencing them means jumping off it, but you gotta be, gotta be smart and be safe. And yeah, you have to know the risks and knowing how many people get rescued out of it each summer, I think is part of understanding those risks yeah. knowing like, well, if they get, if they're going to get 20 calls in five months, am I going to be one of them? Right. And, and do I want to weigh that, you know, against my travels? Yeah. So it was very timely, unfortunately, that this yeah. came out 
at the, at the time that it did. But I think it just goes to show that like this is the sort of thing that you have to keep in mind when you're exploring, right? Yep. Uh, it's part of ecotourism. It's part of being a conscious tourist or, you know, just living here and going to enjoy these different places too, understanding what you're doing and the effect that it has, not just on the environment, but on, you know, the economy. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody else. So it was a, a great piece that Jessica put together. It's unfortunate that it landed at the time that it did. But, you know, if, if this piece changes somebody's mind in the next couple of weeks about jumping off the rocks, maybe... And that's a good thing. Yeah. The last story I wanted to talk about this week is another fairly sad one, but there's a lot of good in this one too. Bob Lautenbach of Lautenbach's Orchard Country passed away recently. And uh, you wrote about him for this week's issue of The Pulse. I actually went back into our video archives to try to pull some video of Bob just in interviews that we've done with Peninsula Filmworks. And we're kind of looking back at his life and everything that he's accomplished. Walk me through Bob's life a little bit, Miles. Yeah, uh, Bob Lautenbach, for those who don't know, Orchard Country Winery and Market is the market that is just south of the village of Fish Creek, um, right as you come into the town. And, you know, it's the big, beautiful red barns, the cherry orchard alongside the road, the grape vineyard alongside the road as well. And, you know, anybody who's gone to Door County knows that landscape because it's this beautiful entryway into Fish Creek, especially in the spring. You see all the blossoms in the fall. You see people out picking apples. Um, and kind of that fall farm market feel. In the winter, you see a horse-drawn sleigh taking people on tours of the orchard. And Bob was very proud of that. His parents actually started this market, or the farm, back in 1955. And then he and his parents, I believe, together kind of hashed the idea of the farm market. And after he took over, they opened it up and had a roadside market, like a classic old just little shack selling some apples and cherries. And over time that just grew and grew and grew into this big business. And Bob was really proud of the fact that he could keep that landscape. Like his business was the grand entry to Fish Creek and that it was while he had built it into this bigger business, that bigger business allowed him to keep the orchard there. So you think of that doorstep and seeing blossoms and that old Door County agricultural feel at the entryway. And it's not fake. It's a working orchard. It's a working farm, you know, like, that's one of the things that sets Door County apart from other communities. They have to manufacture the attraction. They have to build a water park or a theme park or some reason for you to come to that community, a museum, a convention center. The great thing about Door County and why it's different than other destinations and what people for years have told me about why they come back is like not seeing a McDonald's, not seeing that subway, not seeing the manufactured stuff, but seeing those authentic businesses. They still survive. So he was immensely proud of being that business that provided that for Fish Creek. Yeah, I've, I've met him a couple of times and I was, you know, even taken aback in going over and seeing him still out in the fields and, you know, directing things out there and then running inside to the winery and working on machines there, like very active in what he was doing, even in his older age. And when we went back through kind of our interview with him, we had talked to him about the power of tourism and what tourism meant for Lautenbachs. And the quote that I pulled that I loved was that he said when he was watching all of the cars going up and down the road, that signaled to him that he needed to provide the best possible product that he could. Not that like, hey, look, it's going to be easy. We have all of this, you know, traffic coming through. People are going to come in and buy he was saying like, we have such a big market here. Like we have to provide the best we can so that they'll come. Right. Yeah. And I love that way of thinking about it. Not like, oh yeah, there's, you know, 2 million people who come up here in the summer and it's going to be easy for us to just rake in customers. 
but like, wow, look at this opportunity that we have. Let's make the best thing that we can for them so that they keep coming back. Yeah. And his children said kind of that same sentiment that he had embedded that in their minds as well. I went down and met with his daughter, Carrie, and, and son, Chris, on Sunday morning. And it's about 10 o'clock in the morning on Sunday. And that market is hopping. The parking lot is full. There's tons of people in there. And I mentioned this to Carrie and she's like, oh, you should have seen it yesterday. That was busy. And I was like, man, there are like 75, 100 people in your shop right now. And you're like, oh, it's not so busy. But it's pretty wild because if you look at the old pictures of that market and just literally just a little roadside hut into what it is now, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, it's grown so much just in my lifetime, like in my cognizant years, it's so different now. And, you know, like I said, Bob was really proud of that. He started doing a, the winery in 1985 and started doing your cherry wines, you know, the uh, fruit wines that sometimes get ridiculed, but a lot of people just love. And then eventually actually started doing grape wines. So he's always evolving and always changing and adding a new product and trying to create that, like you said, that, that great experience. One thing that I found interesting too that his daughter said was that he loved that he got to run this business where people actually loved what he did. You know, like people love Door County Cherries. <laughs> As a local, you kind of get like, okay, yeah, cherries. And you almost like roll your eyes at it. But people love it. They love to come and see it. They love to walk through the orchard. They like to put their hands on and, and pick them themselves. And they love to ask questions. So it's pretty cool that you can have a down in the dirt agricultural job, be a farmer, but people love what you're doing and, and get excited about it. So he loved being a promoter. He loved being in the media and interviewed about Door County Cherries. He loved the harvest season. You know, he died July 11th. The last day, the last time that he spoke to his kids, they said he was jazzed up about the harvest. And he was disappointed. He, he probably wasn't going to make it home to get one last harvest season in because for him, that was like the big game for an athlete was the like bringing in the cherries and the excitement around the farm and all the visitors coming in. So, you know, it's just cool that somebody gets to, to live their life. And he spent 60 some years on that farm doing something he loved to do and, and working his butt off at it. And we're losing a generation like that. You know, I, I've thought a lot about the artists and the generation of artists from the seventies and how many of them we've lost recently. And I hadn't thought of it this way, but there is kind of like this generation of agricultural leaders that we're losing as well that really changed what agriculture could be up here. You know, Ray Slaby died recently. He had the raised cherry hut for years. Loretta Robert Troy in Egg Harbor at Highline Orchard, she passed away recently. And now Bob Lautenbach. You know, that, those are three farmers who had those roadside markets within like, I don't know, six miles of each other. You know, so that are all like hallmark things. Like that's part of the landscape. That's part of what people love about Door County is driving. If you drive between Egg Harbor and Fish Creek, you see Highline Orchard. You always saw Ray's Cherry Hut. You saw Lautenbach's uh, Winery and Market. Like you saw the old farm markets. It was the agriculture that made you feel like this is different than somewhere else. Maybe we underrate that sometimes. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, you're writing about Bob in this week's Pulse, correct? Yeah. Okay, so people can learn a little bit more about him there. And we we have written about Bob and made videos about Lautenbach plenty in the past, so there's a lot to dig into and enjoy as we remember Bob's legacy this week. And you know, another thing that, like, when you pulled that video, it's pretty cool that we have gotten the opportunity to interview a lot of these folks, not just, like, for print, but getting them on video, getting their voices, getting their faces, seeing their, their emotions on their faces as they talk about the things they do, and that's one of the things, like, you see that picture of Bob, you, and you see how much he loved the orchard. When we have those interviews with Doug Bouchard, who passed away, you see how much he gets jazzed about Thumb Fun and 
kind of being a carny. And we got to get some more of those on film because it's, it's a pretty amazing resource once you lose those people to have that to draw back on. Yeah. I mean, not, e- not even just for like publication and for, you know, having new stories to tell once they're gone, but just for the families too. Right. Having that like last look. Yeah. Stories they may not have heard, those types of things. So yep. yeah, we are, we're incredibly privileged that we're able to be able to capture that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. I, I hope that people find it valuable uh, as we, you know, continue to, to release it and that sort of thing. Uh, is there anything else for this week that folks need to know, Miles? Anything coming down the pipeline that, uh, that people should be aware of? Well, you know, just to take it out of the somber note, one thing I'm kind of excited for is the Lego block party in Sister Bay this weekend. <laughs> I'm so glad that you brought that up. That is such a cool event. Yeah. It's cool just in general to like get kids playing with Lego, but like the, I, I wrote a little bit of it about it for the um, A&E section this week, and it is a group called the Wisconsin Lego Users Group, and they are adult fans of Lego, which is a term that's been around since the 90s to refer to adult collectors, right? And they are going to get together and it's not like a big like come and play with lego or buy lego kind of thing it is more of a showcase of their work that they do and they build really cool things they do massive build projects they get together every so often in milwaukee i believe but they they come together and they do challenges they do all sorts of stuff and last year they brought up and i I believe they'll have them there this year as well they brought up recreations of door county icons in lego which is super cool for anyone to go see not just kids or lego fans Anybody will get a kick out of seeing Eagle Bluff Lighthouse or Cana Island Lighthouse. Al Johnson. Um, Al Johnson's was really cool with, yeah. the, with all the. There was one also that I liked that you'd taken a picture of last year of uh, one of the Washington Island Ferry lines, oh, yeah. one of them, but then just full of different pop culture characters like Lego uh, superheroes and and stuff like that. It was yeah. fun to see. Like, oh, look at all these you know Lego characters who are coming to the island. I went a couple of years ago, and somebody had made a giant goat out of Legos. There was a whole village with like running trains and everything like that. Mm-hmm. I think stage. that'll be there this year as well. I, I talked to one of the guys and he showed me pictures. He made a replica of Miller Park with a retractable roof. Miller Park, for those who don't know, that's a, the home of the brewers. It has a new name now, which I refuse to call it by. But it's a massive version of Miller Park that's just really cool. And they do, I don't know what the plan is this year. There's these cool things to look at, but uh, a couple of years ago, what they had was a table full of Legos out under a couple of tents that kids could go and just mess around and, and make their own creations. So I took my nieces and nephews there and they had a ton of fun. So if you're a family, want to check it out. If you're an adult who just digs Legos, if you just want to see some cool stuff that people are doing, it's, it's a fun time. Yeah, I'm glad that you uh, you brought this up to me because you're like, hey, do you want to write about this Lego thing? And I was like, I super do. I, <laughs> I think Legos are cool. I think they're very therapeutic. Yeah. I'm, I can be very stressed out at times. And sometimes it's fun to just sit down with something that you can just spend an hour doing something quiet with your hands on. And uh, in this piece, I kind of just dug into that idea of like an adult fan of Lego, right? Or an yeah. A-fall, as they're called. And this year, actually, Lego officially produced adult sets 18 plus sets for the first time and they come in like sleek black collectors boxes and they're all sorts of things that miles you would think are super cool like uh miniature busts of darth vader's helmet or like stormtroopers all the way to recreations of andy warhol's marilyn monroe art piece that he did you can collect that and make that huge like ten thousand piece recreations of the roman Colosseums. Wow. There is a, uh, and this has been around for a while, not particularly 
like marketed towards adults, but they have an architecture series that's all super mini scaled recreations of famous landmarks. That's cool. And they do one called like the Skyline series. And they have one of Chicago, they have one of New York, they have London, Tokyo, and they're just recreations of the Skyline. And like all sorts of things like that, that you'd be like, oh, this is a cool piece that I can put up on a shelf and look at as more of an art piece rather than like a toy. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that it, it's super cool. And I'm also, I'm gonna nerd out about Lego real quick. Miles, you called them Legos. Did you know that that's not correct? No. They're not called Legos. They're called Lego. That's the plural. So I'm playing with Lego. Hey, look at all that Lego. And if you want to get really detailed, you can be like, oh, these are Lego bricks. But you wouldn't call them Legos. That's weird. Well, there you go. Now you know. Well, now you know what I learned as I dug into Wizlug, the Wisconsin A-Falls, <laughs> who put all this together. So, Well, thank you for the deep dive. Yeah, now you know everything that you'd ever wanted to know and a little bit that you didn't want to know about <laughs> Lego. Miles, I think that that is going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much for chatting with me, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.